when truth is sacrificed to power. What was wrong with Karach and his fellow rebels? On the face of it, what they said was true and principled. You've gone too far, they said to Moses and Aaron. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and God is with them. Why then are you setting yourselves above God's congregation? They had a point. God had summoned the people to become Mamlachet Kohanim V'goy Kadosh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, a kingdom, every one of whose members was in some sense a priest and a nation, every one of whom was holy. Moses himself had said, Would that all God's people were prophets, that he would place his spirit upon them. These are radically egalitarian sentiments. Why then was there a hierarchy with Moses as leader and Aaron as high priest? What was wrong was that even at the outset it was obvious that Korach was duplicitous. There was a clear disconnection between what he claimed to want and what he really sought. Korach did not seek a society in which everyone was the same, everyone a priest. He was not, as he sounded, a utopian anarchist seeking to abolish hierarchy altogether. He was instead mounting a leadership challenge. As Moses' later words to him indicate, he wanted to be high priest himself. He was Moses and Aaron's cousin, son of Yitzhar, brother of Moses and Aaron's father, Amram. He felt that it was unfair that both leadership positions had gone to a single family within the clan. He claimed to want equality. In fact, what he wanted was power. That was Karach, the Levite. But what was happening was more complex than that. There were two other groups involved, the Reubenites, Datana and Aviram, and the 250 Israelites, men of rank within the community, representatives at the assembly, and well-known. They too had their grievances. The Reubenites were upset that as descendants of Jacob's firstborn, they had no special leadership roles. And according to Ibn Ezra, the 250 men of rank from the other tribes were upset that after the sin of the golden calf, leadership passed from the firstborn within each tribe to the single tribe of Levi. This was an unholy alliance and bound to fail, since their claims conflicted. If Karach achieved his ambition of becoming high priest, then the Reubenites and the 250 men of rank would have been disappointed had the Reubenites won. Karach and the men of rank would have been disappointed. Had the men of rank achieved their ambition, Karach and the Reubenites would be left dissatisfied. The whole disordered, fragmented narrative sequence in this chapter is a case of style mirroring substance. This was a disordered, confused rebellion whose protagonists were united only in their desire to overthrow the existing leadership. None of this, however, unsettled Moses. What actually made him become angry was something else altogether. The words of Datan and Aviram, Isn't it enough that you brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert, and now you want to lord it over us? What's more, you haven't brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you think you can pull something over our eyes? We will definitely not come. The monumental untruth of their claim that Egypt, where the Israelites were slaves and cried out to God to be saved, was not 
a mad land flowing with milk and honey. It was that that finally made Moses angry. What's going on here? The sages defined it. In one of the most famous statements, any dispute for the sake of heaven will have enduring value. But every dispute, not for the sake of heaven, will not have enduring value. What's an example of a dispute, for the sake of heaven, the dispute between Hillel and Shammai? What's an example of one not for the sake of heaven, the dispute of Korach and all his company? So says the Mishnah in Avot chapter 5. The rabbis did not conclude from the Korach rebellion that argument is wrong, that leaders are entitled to unquestioning obedience, that the supreme value in Judaism should be, as it is in some faiths, submission. To the contrary, argument is the lifeblood of Judaism. So long as it's rightly motivated and essentially constructive in its aims, Judaism is a unique phenomenon, a civilization all of whose canonical texts are anthologies of argument. In Tanakh, the heroes of faith, Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Job, argue with God. Midrash is founded on the premise that there are shivim panim la Torah, 70 legitimate interpretations of Torah. The Mishnah is largely constructed on the model of Rabbi X says this, Rabbi Y says that. The Talmud, far from resolving these arguments, usually deepens them considerably. Argument in Judaism is a holy activity. The ongoing dialogue of the Jewish people as it reflects on the terms of its destiny and the demands of its faith. What then made the argument of Korach and his co-conspirators different from that of the schools of Hillel and Shammai? Rabbeinu Yonah offered a simple explanation. An argument for the sake of heaven is one about truth. An argument not for the sake of heaven is about power. The difference is immense. If I argue for the sake of truth, then if I win, I win. But if I lose, I also win, because being defeated by the truth is the one defeat that is also a victory. I'm enlarged. I learned something that I didn't know before. But in a contest for power, if I lose, I lose. But if I win, I also lose, because in diminishing my opponents, I've diminished myself. Moses could not have had a more decisive vindication than the miracle for which he asked and was granted that the ground open up and swallow up his opponents. Yet not only did this not end the argument, it diminished the respect in which Moses was held. The Torah says the next day the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They said, you've killed the Lord's people. That Moses needed to resort to force was itself a sign that he'd been dragged down to the level of the rebels. That's what happens when power, not truth, is at stake. One of the aftermaths of Marxism, which persists in movements like postmodernism and postcolonialism, is the idea that there is no such thing as truth. There's only power. The prevailing discourse in a society represents not the way things are, but that the way the ruling power, the hegemon, wants things to be. All reality is socially constructed to advance the interests of one group or another. The result is a hermeneutics of suspicion.
in which we no longer listen to what anyone says, we merely ask what interest are they trying to advance? Truth, they say, is merely the mask worn to disguise the pursuit of power. To overthrow a, quotes, colonial power, you have to invent your own discourse, your own narrative, and it doesn't matter whether it's true or false. All that matters is that people believe it. That is what is now happening in the campaign against Israel on campuses throughout the world and in the BDS movement in particular. Like the Karach Rebellion, it brings together people who have nothing else in common. Some belong to the far left, a few to the far right, some are anti-globalists, and some are genuinely concerned with the plight of the Palestinians. Driving it all, however, are people who, on theological and political grounds, are opposed to the existence of Israel within any boundaries whatsoever and are equally opposed to democracy, free speech, freedom of information, religious liberty, human rights, and the sanctity of life. What they have in common is a refusal to give the supporters of Israel a fair hearing, thus flouting the fundamental principle of justice expressed in Roman law in the phrase Aude alteram partem, hear the other side. The flagrant falsehoods that it sometimes utters, that Israel wasn't the birthplace of the Jewish people, that there never was a temple in Jerusalem, that Israel is a colonial power, a foreign transplant alien to the Middle East, rival the claims of Datan and Aviram that Egypt was a land flowing with milk and honey and that Moses brought the people out solely in order to kill them in the desert. Why bother with truth when all that matters is power? Thus, the spirit of Korach lives on. All this is very sad indeed since it's fundamentally opposed to the principle of the university as a home for the collaborative search for truth. It also does little for the cause of peace in the Middle East, for the future of the Palestinians, or for freedom, democracy, religious liberty, and human rights. There are real and substantive issues at stake, which need to be faced by both sides with honesty and courage. Nothing is achieved by sacrificing truth to the pursuit of power, the way of Korach through the ages.